Episode 2, The Road to Bilbao. In the last episode, the Camino Man gets to the starting line of the Camino del Norte in northern Spain, with no expectations of the journey ahead or the people he will meet. In episode two, The Road to Bilbao, once he starts walking, Camino Man soon finds out that the Camino is much more than he could have ever imagined. Day one, Irún to San Sebastián, 26.5 kilometres. It was raining. I started walking early with four women from South Korea and a South Korean man who I found out lived in the US. I recognised them from the day before when they arrived at the airport at the same time as me. I found out later that they had got a taxi from the airport to the bridge, the one that I couldn't find, and then walked to the albergue. They seemed to know what to do. They did. I didn't. That morning in the rain I got ahead of them and missed the first turn off the main road when we started walking and fortunately they called out to me to get me back on track. Back on a path that became a muddy track up the side of a steep hill some 700 metres high. Or should that be a mountain? That was more a torrent of raging water than a track. I walked faster than the Koreans and soon I was ahead of them again. And then I was faced with a decision. Keep going on the muddy trail or take an alternate route that followed the ridge line with magnificent views of the coast. Or so my guidebook told me. It was the first alternate route that I had recognised and there would be many more. But on a day when the sky was bucketing down rain, there was no choice because you couldn't see anything of the coast. So I followed the official route. I followed the yellow arrows that you see marked on an official sign or painted or taped on walls or on the pavement or on the road or anywhere really that marks the way. Trust the arrows. Trust those who have gone before. The trail eventually levelled out, but the rain was relentless, and despite the best efforts of my rain jacket, I was wet. My boots were wet, my socks were wet, my feet were wet, my shorts were wet, and there was a strange foamy substance oozing down my left leg. I didn't really know what it was, but one thing was certain. My pack was wet. The pack cover was not working. It was too small. When can we not? A man walked past, covered from head to toe, in what looked like a medieval monk-like raincoat that enclosed his whole body and pack. He carried a stick that looked well used. He looked at me and stopped. Are you okay? Ye yes, I'm okay, just wet. When can we not? He smiled and continued on. I must have looked like a wet rag that needed wringing out, even throwing away. As every now and then the man stopped at the side of the track and looked back at me. I didn't know if he was checking his GPS or saying a prayer or just checking on me. Then at a signpost to a town he stopped and waited for me. Mangiare? What? Oh, I thought you were Italian. We're coming into a town. Would you like to get something to eat together? Yeah, that'd be great. We followed the path down into the town and found a greengrocer. Michael, or Michelle, as it's pronounced in Canada, purchased some fruit and we took off our raincoats under a shelter at a nearby playground and had something to eat. Michael was retired and had been walking from somewhere in France. His wife was French and she would join him later to walk the Camino with him for a short time before heading back home. 
I was just grateful for the company and conversation as I ate a banana and chomped into my block of dark almond chocolate. We got going again. The stop was good, but I was cold. I hadn't noticed how cold I was when I was walking. But when we went to start walking again, I was barely able to click the shoulder straps tightly together as my fingers were so numb. I got it together and I told myself just to keep walking. Just keep walking. The rain wasn't as heavy now and I did warm up. I realised we had conquered our, the, well, the first mountain as we descended further into our, our first coastal town, Pasayers de San Juan, a fish, fishing village and commercial port. Victor Hugo had lived here at one time. I wasn't taking any photos. It was too wet. I was cold and in survival mode. It didn't stop Michael visiting Victor Hugo's apartment above the tourist information office. I waited outside in the rain and took a breath till he joined me again. We continued and followed the arrows through the narrow laneways of the old town, leading us to our first ferry crossing. I realised that according to my guidebook, we had somehow crossed over from the official route to a, an alternative route and had come back to the official route of the ferry. And I was just following the arrows. Now, the ferry was a tiny boat with a single operator that traversed the mouth of a narrow river that was deep enough to accommodate large ocean-going ships. I hadn't thought about the fare. It cost 80 centimes. I had 75. The operator led me on. The, the crossing was brief, but once on the other side, Michael had to go back. He had left his walking stick that he had carried from France on the other side. He said he would catch up and went back to the ferry. I had another decision. Wait or keep going. Take the town route or the tougher coastal route up a steep, roughly hewn staircase around the cliff face. I went coastal. Well, why not? I made it to the top of the cliff and wound my way along the coastal trail in the light rain to San Sebastian. San Sebastian. A resort town on the north coast of Spain, famous for its playas or beaches, its long promenades and its world-famous cuisine, especially its innovative pinchos, a canapé traditionally pierced with a cocktail stick, securing it to a piece of bread. But so much more. Oh, and never... Ever confuse it with tapas. Anyway, San Sebastian. Wow. My first big town was laid out in front of me as I looked down from the Ulia mountain. But by this time, all I wanted to do was find the Albergue de Peregrinos, check in and get dry. I couldn't find it as I walked through town, so I asked for directions at the local tourist information office in the town plaza. Uh, Dove est albergue municipale? Are you Italian? No, I'm Australian. I thought you spoke Italian. Oh, donde est el burgue municipale? That was strange. The officer spoke a little English, gave me some directions and I continued on my way. I missed the albergue. I was looking around taking photos and watching the demonstration for a candidate in the European Parliament elections. But a local recognised me as a peregrino as I got to the end of the first beach, stopped me and gave me directions to a hostel just off the end of the second beach. After a little more walking and even seeing a few signs telling tourists to go home, I found the sign to the hostel. Well, I, I thought it was the hostel. For some reason I thought about walking a little further. The rain had stopped and I was feeling okay. No, go to the hostel. I started walking up the road and then a German guy marched up beside me. Is this the way to the hostel? Yes, I think so. Oh, good. 
and he strode on past me up the hill to arrive at the hostel just before me. As I entered, the receptionist quickly asked me, do we have a reservation? No, a thorough we're through. The German had beaten me to the last bed. Oh, so Germans. I hurriedly asked for and got directions to another hostel. I got a map. I got lost. But I found it. The Koisi Hotel. Hostel. The Co it was new. It was heaven. I checked in, had a shower, put on my driest clothes and put everything else in a dryer. There were five other people in my room that night. Brendan from Ireland, Jung Bao from South Korea, who didn't speak any Spanish or English, an older Japanese man who didn't speak much English, a middle-aged woman from somewhere in Europe who I didn't speak to, all walking the Camino, and a young American female backpacker who I chatted with for a while. I went downstairs to the little bar, got a beer and a bocadillo, a sandwich, and chatted with Brendan. Hello, Stephen! And the Japanese guy. We're all going to have sushi and Santiago, Stephen. And Jong Bao. He doesn't speak any English, Stephen. I left them and went out for a walk. Decided not to sample the high-end culinary pinchers. Backtracked to the hostel and hit the sack. I didn't know what time it was. But it had been a big first day. And I was tired. Day two. San Sebastian to Getaria. 28 kilometres. I woke early, got dressed and snuck out quietly. I remembered the way back to the other hostel and the way out of town. It was good being on the road, being on my own, just being. I didn't really know where I was going, but I just had to follow the arrows. My goal was Gitaria. It seemed to be the natural destination according to my guidebook. Again, it was wet. Not as torrential as the day before, but still wet. Very quickly, I left San Sebastian behind and started walking along these country roads between small farms. I remember being passed by this fast-walking Spanish guy. How did I know he was Spanish? Well, maybe it was the colour of his clothing and maybe it was the fact he spoke Spanish to me briefly because I said, hola, and I didn't understand any of what he said except for buen camino as he sped away in front of me. The people you meet. Even coming the other way. On two occasions that day, when the way became a patchwork of large flat stones through the hills and what seemed to be the middle of nowhere. Two couples jogged by in their active way, carrying an open umbrella. Well, it was raining a little bit. Anyway, after stopping for some chocolate and a toilet break, I continued on through the rolling green hills till the path descended into Zaratza, another coastal town with a large sweeping beach. I didn't realise that until after I got lost again. I decided to follow a different path marked with green and blue stripes as I entered town, as the yellow arrows seemed to have disappeared and my guidebook suggested an alternate route. Well, then the blue and green stripes of the alternate route disappeared. Oh, I retraced my steps, ventured a little further along the main street where the yellow arrows had disappeared and found them again. Sometimes you just have to look a little further. The main street ran parallel to the beach, but it wasn't beach weather. At least it wasn't raining anymore. So I continued through town and onto the paved footpath of the road as it waved, weaved its way between the sea and the cliff face around the coastline. Apparently, the official route went inland, just as you left town. But I didn't see that. The arrows pointed me to the coastal walkway with its white tiled pavement and stainless steel balustrade until the arrows disappeared again. You wouldn't let anyone paint an arrow on this fencing. 
A group of Spanish women stopped me and after a little gesticulating and broken English and thrusting their camera at me, they took their photo. They were nice and thanked me profusely. Gracias, mucho gracias, hombre guapo. I tramped on, but by this time my walk had become a trudge, an effort to put one foot in front of the other. The 26.5 kilometres from the day before and the distance already covered on this day's walk were having an effect on me. And was that a blister developing on my left foot? After doubting myself about the way, which I've said is an old bad habit, but trusting the path, trusting the arrows and realising there was nowhere else to go, I followed the path and made it to the church in Gataria. And as every peregrino knows, if you lose the way, just head for the local church as the route always passes by the church. Gitaria was an interesting town nestled between the coast and the mountains with a sweeping beach and protected harbour on one side of the point and a smaller town beach on the other. In town, I found a sign pointing up a killer hill to the local albergue, Albergue Canpaia. It was excruciating on my legs and feet. But I made it. I was the first person there, and the albergue didn't open for a few hours, so I sat, had a little chocolate, and waited as gradually other peregrinos joined me, including a German guy called Daniel. Yeah, hello. We, we sat and talked until an attractive, raven-haired Spanish woman opened the albergue door. Uh, Daniel and I were the first and second peregrinos and got to choose our beds. I showered, dressed, and checked my pack. Things were still a, da a bit damp. I'd managed to quarantine a few items in a wet bag and I knew the pack cover was too small, but why was it still so damp? I checked the laptop compartment where I'd stored a writing pad that I was going to use each day to write down my experiences and my lonely planet glide to Spain as I was planning to tour Spain after walking the Camino. Well, both were soggy wads of paper. I binned them. Oh, uh, by the way, did I mention I chose a pack that was the largest you could use as a carry-on baggage on an airplane? With everything in it, like about four changes of clothing, a pair of shoes to wear at the end of the day, and a sleeping bag liner, it weighed about eight or nine kilos. On the Del Morte, you can usually get a blanket if you need one, and it was almost summer, so I figured I wouldn't need a sleeping bag. Oh, and a word of warning. Never, ever choose the bunk closest to the bathroom. You might think that it's good if you have to get up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom. But so will everyone else who will fumble in the dark to find the bathroom and bump into your bunk and turn the bathroom light on and flush the toilet. Hello, Stephen. It was Brendan. Now, you must have got away early. Well, you know, I just wanted to get on the road. Ah, uh, you could have waited and we would have walked with you. We was he and Zhong Bao. We kept talking and Daniel joined us. Pretty soon the four of us, Brendan, Brendan? Brendan, Daniel, Jong Bao and I were off back down that wretched hill into town to get dinner. It was great, actually. We walked past restaurants where chefs were grilling large slabs of meat and whole fish in these ancient outdoor fireplaces and past a few modern restaurants on the harbour. We looked at the stone architecture of old Spain and we walked down narrow laneways before we settled on a bar with beer and pinchos and watched football on the TV. It was the La Liga playoffs. We got to know each other a little more, except for Jong Bao and staggered back up the hill to be greeted by the aroma of freshly cooked pizza. I had forgotten that the albergue did dinner, or as the stunning raven-haired Spanish woman said, you didn't throw the information card properly, did you? I smiled. Ah, uh, <laughs> no. 
I almost ordered a pizza because the aroma was so good. But I bought a bottle of red wine instead and started talking with other peregrinos. There was Anna, the blister sister from Switzerland, so called because she was the guru in treating blisters of all sizes. And Daniel told me later that he chatted with this bearded, bedraggled old guy wearing gypsy pants who walked the Camino and did nothing else. He had stamps from albergues from everywhere in Spain, in France, in Italy, in several different credentials that he carried with him. Now, the albergue was one shared dormitory of bunk beds. And not long after the lights went out, you realised that you were sleeping in a room full of people when they started snoring. I was trapped in a cacophony of snoring, and that's being very kind. Just as one person finished snoring, another would start. I never experienced anything like it. And my earplugs were tucked away somewhere in my bag. So between the snoring and the people going to the bathroom, I didn't get much sleep that night. Day three. Guitaria to Albergue Isabide. 22 kilometres. It rained overnight. And it was raining again in the morning. And, and it was cold. The snoring was that bad that Anna told me she would have slept outside except for the rain. Anyway, we hit the road. And when I say we, I mean Daniel and me. That's what's like walking on the Camino. You meet people. You walk into the same place that day and you meet them again, like Bridget from Belgium. She was a grandmother who started walking the Camino by simply walking out her front door in Belgium. Then there was Brendan and John Bao, Joseph from France and Tracy from the USA and Sophie from Canada and Lydia from Slovenia. Daniel and I walked and talked. He was younger than me. A bank manager from Orgenborg in Germany, married to Vivian, father of two primary school children, and a mad supporter of Werder Bremen. We got on like a house on fire. We were both fathers. We were at interesting points in our lives. And when I showed him a photo of my son in the old orange away strip for Werder Bremen, it was meant to be. Yeah, very impressive, Steve. Your son's a good guy. And we were two mates who talked about anything and everything. Daniel needed time out from his job. His boss was about to leave and suggested that he should either take her job, which meant being away from his family for part of the week, or leave the organisation and follow her. He asked for time off and he got 10 days and Vivian could see he needed a break. What a woman. And his father had been telling him to walk the Camino as he had done for years. So, well, in fact, his father and mother took a driving holiday through Spain and drove Daniel to the starting point in Irún dropping him off at the Albergue de Peregrinos. Daniel told me it didn't look like the right place, but his father was adamant it was, and as he had stayed there, and told Daniel to go in. Well, he went in and came outside as he couldn't find an albergue inside this four-storey building. His father insisted he go in again. Daniel went in again and met an old man who had worked at the albergue and who explained that it had moved and he would show Daniel where it had moved to. As they walked out of the building, the old man looked at Daniel's father. Hans? Thomas? They remembered each other. <laughs> well, Daniel and I kept walking, and at one time I said to Daniel, Daniel? Yes, Steve? You're German. Yes, Steve? So you'd have a basement. Yes, Steve, every German has a basement. I could come and live in your basement. Yeah, you could. I tell Vivian, you must do that. 
I'd be the crazy Australian living in the basement who all your friends went to come around to meet. And it was around this time that I started referring to myself as the crazy Australian. And this idea of me visiting Daniel and staying in his basement cemented our relationship, plus a few other things. Daniel had also visited and lived in Australia and had been shown great hospitality by some people in Tasmania. I think allowing me to stay with him was one way of repaying that hospitality. That, and he was just a nice guy. I mean, he had a pet palm tree called Norbert next to his small backyard beer and barbecue house. I suggested he should have a Hawaiian-themed party with oversized, gaudy Hawaiian shirts for his and his neighbour's birthday. He liked the idea. And he and his mates took turns hosting everyone in the neighbourhood for every major football tournament, like the World Cup. It was all that and a crazy conversation about the Camino Mogadishu. Steve, first rule of the Camino Mogadishu is you don't talk about the Camino Mogadishu. I don't know what you're talking about. Good. Now, the route had been torturous that day, rising and descending some 600 metres, passing through forests and up the sides of mountains. Now, it wasn't the inclines that it could affect you, but the steep declines. I would meet a number of people suffering from sharp knee pain on the downslopes. I was one of them. Again that day, there wasn't an alternate route after Eloriaga, uh, taking you closer to the coastline. But I didn't see it. Daniel didn't see it. No one saw it. We followed the arrows. It was still wet and cold, and the country road we were walking on was slippery. There was a mixture of asphalt and then graded concrete. As we headed down off the hills into the town of Theba, Daniel and I noticed a gathering of people off to the left side of the road. And as we got closer, we could see several people dressed in traditional clothing, white pants and shirts with a red beret and belt, who were dancing in a small grassed clearing sandwiched between the back of a large house below a small stone open-sided chapel. We stopped to look and take a photo, and as the dance finished... We were about to get going again when an old woman beckoned us over. She did it again and made an eating gesture and then pointed to a blue canopy set up at the back of the house. We looked at each other, shrugged our shoulders and walked over to her. She ushered us through the crowd to the blue canopy where we were served hot chorizo rolls and hot potato soup. Then the old lady found the only woman in the gathering who could speak English and she explained that it was the festival of San Roque. Thank you, San Roque. Not Roque, Roque. There'll be no more Teresa Ross for you unless you say it properly, OK? Roque? Clothena. After four chorizo rolls and two cups of potato soup, we were very warm and very grateful. We continued seeing more of the local festivities as we walked through town, especially this dance of giant medieval puppets to music played on traditional instruments. Walking through the town square, they were setting up for a bigger event where, later we on, we found out that Brendan and Jong Bao were offered glasses of red wine. I prefer a Coca-Cola, Stephen. We, we could have stayed in Deva, but Daniel and I were on a mission to get to a private albergue, Albergue Isabide, where they served big plates of salad, pasta, chicken and roast potatoes for dinner. Daniel had a friend just ahead of us on the way, sending back pictures, and this menu delighted Brendan. He had a stuma, as he called it, a colostomy bag due to bowel cancer, and had to be careful about what he ate and drank. But I do enjoy a Coca-Cola, Stephen. He was also divorced, had two adult daughters with children, and loved hiking. Stephen, that sounds like a dating profile, but it's true. 
I had retired, and there's nothing like a good walk. That night at the Burger, at the Adelberger, there was Joseph, Bridget, Daniel, Brendan, John Bauer, Irvin, who beat me to the hostel on the first night, Tracy, Angel, who I would meet again later, a young Italian guy, a father and son from Spain, Yuri from Japan, and Sophie from Canada and Lydia from Slovenia. And none of my clothes got dry. Day four. Alberghe isa vide tu monasterio de San Arusa, 27 kilometres. The next day, after picking up our breakfast packs provided by the Alberghe, we left at different times. But Daniel and I caught up with Brendan and Jung Bao in Marquina Jeme at a little cafe. We had a killer descent of the hills that day, past the national monument built around these three megalithic stones, harbouring a shrine that was enclosed inside a hexagonal building. And my knees were hurting. I wasn't looking forward to many downslopes that day, but I knew we would ascend over some 800 metres. On the way out of town, we separated again, but caught up at the end of the day at Monasterio de Zenarusa, a UNESCO-listed monastery and Basque National Monument, just outside of Bolivar, the ancestral homeland of Simon Bolivar, the liberator, a leader of Central and South American independence, that was. Who would have said it? Steve, you said it, perched on top of a steep hill. The walk up the stone steps was torture at the end of a 27-kilometre walk, but there was no way of avoiding it. When we got there, the monastery was not open, so we waited and talked and waited. Firstly, Yuri arrived, then Brendan and John Bao, and finally one of the monks walked up, opened reception and escorted us to the dormitories. There were two, the top and bottom, on the roadside of the church. I thought we might be staying in the monastery itself, but no. These were simple, basic dormitories with solid wooden triple bunks set up for peregrinos. And it was sunny. We could wash and get our clothes dry. And back at reception, there was a little shop that sold beer. Daniel and I went back and bought a large bottle each and joined the others sitting in the sun. Jong Bao glanced at us and jumped out of his chair exclaiming, oh, and raced up to the shop before it closed. I think it was the first time that he almost spoke English. I went to the service that evening in the church, sung by the monks. There weren't many of them, and the majority were ageing men. And it was a little funny to key in everyone to the right note for the service each time the leader would play the note using a little Casio keyboard. It was odd to see what is now old technology in an even older setting. Still, in that space, the men's voices reverberated around us, and it was touching even though I couldn't understand any of it, seeing how it was well sung in Spanish. I thanked the main monk as I left, and he recruited me and Joseph to carry a large pot of a type of vegetable minestrone soup to the top dormitory that we placed in the middle of the table for dinner. Everyone staying in that dormitory had set the table and sliced some thick, crusty bread the monks had given them, and there was wine. So we enjoyed dinner together as one big peregrino family, Bridget was there as well as Sophie from Canada and Lydia from Slovenia and others. I topped off the meal by placing a giant block of dark almond chocolate on the table to share. Chocolate comes in very handy on the Camino. Now, Michael from Canada and his wife caught up to us and were there that night. Apparently, Michael approached Brendan with an unusual request, as he told me about later. Stephen! 
Did you know what Michael said? I'm just asking, but do you mind if we sleep together? Well, Michael, I said, you're a good-looking man, and we've only just met, but hey, when you're on the Camino... No, he said, do you mind if my wife and I sleep together in the same bed? It was a little disappointing. Day five. Monasterio de Zanarusa to Escarica. 28 plus kilometres. We all slept well that night and woke to find breakfast ready for us that morning in the top dormitory. When I walked in, Bridget and Joseph were eating hamon and queso, ham and cheese sandwiches, which they said the monks had left for us in the refrigerator. I grabbed one, told Daniel to do the same and got a cup of coffee before we hit the road together. That was a good sandwich and it fueled us for a tough walk that day. Again, there were hills and a couple of steep descents before we entered a town called Muntiba that had some interesting murals. Welcome. Muntiba is a town located in the south of Basque country. The Basque country is an oppressed country that fights for its freedom. The symbol which represents the Basque country is the Ecorina. The Spanish flag has been imposed by force and it represents the oppression we suffer. So that is the reason we don't want it. A Muntiba citizen. After another six kilometres or so, we entered Guernica, where we crossed paths again with Brendan and John Bao. We went to the supermercado, the supermarket, and bought croissants and jamon, queso, and other items for lunch and shared them with each other in the centre of the town before moving in. Damn it! Guernica. I forgot about Picasso's mural. During the Spanish Civil War, Guernica was carpet-bombed by the fascist forces and flattened. When you look around... There are not many old buildings. As Daniel and I headed out of town, we stopped for photos with a flat steel sculpture of a peregrino and then climbed. The walk out of Guernica was very steep, rising some three or four hundred metres in the first five kilometres. Otherwise it was sunny and warm as we walked through forest tracks and on the side of the road. Brendan had convinced us to walk to a particular albergue that day that was a little off the main route. It's not too bad, Stephen. They do identify you. It's a be special, Stephen. Now, to get to this albergue, you had to take a right turn at a particular point, not left. Well, Daniel and I went left. We missed the turn that was apparently clearly marked on the road, but so did Brendan and Jong Bao, who were in front of us. We caught up to them one at a time as Jong Bao had dropped behind Brendan. And with Brendan in the lead, Daniel and I kept going. And we kept going even after realising we had gone the wrong way. And we kept going even as we passed another albergue. And I thought, why aren't we stopping there? It's just down the road, Stephen. And we kept going in a big circle after Brendan asked for directions from a local. And we kept going even though my feet were killing me and I definitely had a blister on the base of my left foot. We kept going up and down hills until we got there and walked in exhausted, except for Brendan. Hello! We are here to stay in your lovely albergue with 92 beds tonight and have some of your lovely dinner. We're full. It's a grand albergue and we've walked a long way. We're full. Let's have a Coca-Cola. Brendan, he's saying they are full. I have a Coca-Cola. It's full. It's full, Brendan. A lovely cold Coca-Cola. Brendan. I'll have a beer. Una cerveza, por favor. It took a little while for the message to sink in and a little coaching for me to get the owner to call a taxi so we could go back to the albergue we had passed. Stephen, I've just found out that the albergue is full, but I think I've managed to convince the owner to call us the taxi. We walked outside and sat down. Daniel 
was going to sleep at the front of the alberga. He wasn't walking any further. Just then, Sophie from Canada and Lydia from Slovenia, who had turned right and taken the shorter proper way, apparently about two kilometres, joined us outside. We explained the albergue was full just as our taxi arrived and we were going back to the other albergue, Albergue Escarica at Peccia. Now when we arrived, John Bao was there. I hugged him. Bridget, Josep and others were there sitting in the sunshine, cooking food in an outside kitchen, having a beer and watching their clothes dry. We sent the taxi back for Sophie from Canada and Lydia from Slovenia. I showered, changed, washed my clothes and I looked at my blister, my big blister on my left foot. I drained it. Daniel gave me a compede and a sticky patch to put over the blister. It sealed it and maybe it partially worked. Maybe? Not really. Hey Steve, remember how I got to sleep under the skylight in the dormitory that night? It was like sleeping under the stars. Oh, and thanks for the earplugs. I couldn't hear a thing. I had given Daniel my second pair of earplugs after Guitaria. I tried my pair of earplugs, but I couldn't sleep with them. They were too uncomfortable. Day 6. Alberga Escarica to Portugalete. 35 kilometres. Daniel and I left together the next day. It was our last day of walking together. He was stopping in Bilbao and I was continuing to Portugalete. Well, that was the plan. What I hadn't counted on was my foot. The sharp pain in my knee was manageable, but the blister had gotten worse from the previous day's march. It was bearable, sort of. We followed the arrows through Lara, Betsu, Lesama and Monte Avril and down into Bilbao, where we followed these brass shell markers in the pavement, past an imposing church and into the older part of town, finally meeting the Nervion river or the estuary of Bilbao as it's also known. We crossed at one of the bridges and had drinks at a bar opposite a decathlon store. We took our time, had something to eat and then walked back to the river and followed it. As we neared the Guggenheim, yes the Frank Gehry designed Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Daniel asked me a question I wasn't expecting. Steve, what have you learned from the Camino? with everything you've been through, and I know you're walking further, but is there something already? And without thinking, I said, I got my smile back. I started to choke up a little and hid my tears rather badly as I realised what I had said. I got my smile back. It was true. With everything that had happened to me, I'd lost my smile and now I was enjoying myself like I hadn't in a long time and not only was I enjoying myself meeting new people talking with people from all around the world and walking crazy distances but I was earning my nickname of the crazy Australian and I was enjoying it Daniel seemed happy about that we walked into reception at the Guggenheim got our credentials stamped hugged and said our final goodbyes you have to come visit me, Steve. I cleared it with Vivian. She wants to meet the crazy Australian. And my daughter wants to speak English with you. And why do I sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger? He's Austrian. I walk back to the river to continue on to Porticolete. And Daniel walks into town to his hotel. He was staying two nights before flying home. 
As I walked on my own, I remembered Brendan had said he would catch the metro from Bilbao to Portugalete. Why not catch the metro and have a short day? It's quicker, cheaper and easier, Stephen. Besides, there's not much to see. Well, it depended on which way you went. There were three routes you could take between Bilbao and Portugalete, inland through an industrial area, the left-hand side of the river and the right-hand side of the river. I crossed at the next bridge and continued along the right-hand side of the river. I was interested in the Docklands area, the Riverport, even the symbols for male and female pedestrians on the walking path and the unbelievable Vizcaya swinging bridge of Portugalete. I'd never seen anything like it. A gondola suspended by steel ropes from a steel girder structure that transports cars and people back and forth across the river. And I got to travel on it. And I had never felt anything like the constant ache from the pad of my left foot. Still, I kept walking. I crossed the river on the gondola and made my way up the hill. And with a little help from a local, I found the albergue in Portugalete. And I was troubled. There was a sign that looked suspiciously like it was saying the albergue was full. Copilato. What's the matter? Can't you read Spanish? Uh, no, not really. It's even in English underneath. Full. Still, I asked. Yes, they were full. Bridget had gotten the last bed. And I was told by the manager I should get the metro back to Bilbao and find accommodation there, as I wouldn't find anything in Portugalete. Stephen! Brendan was there. He grabbed his phone and sat outside with me as we rang a few places in my guidebook. Well, what do you know? The albergue manager was right. I had to go back to Bilbao. I said goodbye to Brendan and once again I conquered my fear of doing something different. Got out of my comfort zone, found the metro station and caught the metro back to Bilbao. I hobbled around and with the help of some locals who first sent me in the wrong direction and then ran after me when they realised they were looking at the map in the guidebook the wrong way. And I found the Bilbao Central Hostel and booked in for the night. A shower changed and went out bought extra bigger compedes and some, foot, some, some food and stumbled back into the hostel dining room to have something to eat. I had just settled into my microwave pasta dish when two female voices yelled out, Steve, Steve, Steve! It was Sophie from Canada and Lydia from Slovenia. They were staying at the same hostel. Man, after a long, tiring, emotional day that lifted my spirits. Hey, Steve, remember we stayed in the monastery? Yes. And the sandwiches for breakfast, they were great. I was ex expecting just some coffee and the packaged toast. Sophie from Canada and Lydia from Slovenia looked at me with smiles on their faces. Why do you ask? They were our sandwiches! Sophie from Canada and Lydia from Slovenia had packaged up the sandwiches for themselves and were very surprised to get up in the morning and find them just about all gone. No! <laughs> We laughed, and I showed them the blister. They stopped laughing. I felt very guilty about the sandwiches. I had another large block of dark almond chocolate in my pack, so I gave it to them later. Day 7 to day 10. Bilbao. In the morning, I realised the compede wasn't working for me. The blister seemed to have not only reformed, but had gotten bigger. It really hurt to walk on my foot. 
And after booking another night's accommodation, I made the fateful decision to take off the compete in the hope that it would be better without it. It wasn't. Now, when you peel a sticky patch off something, it brings with it anything that was loose and stuck to the patch. The skin tore and looked lifeless. I decided to cut it away. Wrong decision. It wasn't any better. I limped till Farmathia had purchased spray antiseptic dressings and a tape. I was wrecked. I was tired. My foot hurt. I had made a bad decision and I had to stop. I booked another three nights accommodation in Bilbao and I posted on Instagram about my predicament. My brother Ross replied on WhatsApp. Ouch, Steve, you've pushed on too far on your blistered foot. Bit late to say it, but never cut the skin away. I'm not sure why the blister pad didn't work unless it was too small. I have used blister pads and elastoplast on top of that for protection whilst walking. It will take at least a week to heal, but you'll need protective covering. Bilbao looks great, a, a great place to rest. If you need to finish your Camino, so be it. I'll join you for a 2021 Camino Norte. I cried. This is not over, Ross. I messaged Daniel. Hey, Steve! Good to hear from you. Want to have some supper together? I hope that was code for let's go out and get stinking drunk. It was. I asked Sophie from Canada and Lydia from Slovenia if they wanted to come along, but they just came to meet Daniel. They were moving on the next day and a big night wasn't on the cards. Daniel and I hit one bar and then another and another until Steve... Yes, Daniel. I want pizza. So... Daniel found this shop selling hot pizza slices and when we went inside we found these cold vacuum sealed take-home pizzas. We needed more than a slice so we asked the owner if he could heat them up. No, they make them fresh for you. Pretty soon we were sitting at this marble top table eating freshly cooked pepperoni pizzas topped with chilli oil and drinking Italian red wine. And that's when I realised that everything in the shop was Italian. Except for the husband and wife owners, she was Argentinian and he was Spanish. And I think they were staying open just for us. With full bellies, we thanked them profusely and stumbled back to a previous bar. Daniel's father had messaged him and said we had to drink Pasharan, the local liqueur. So we did. It was nice. And then we said our final farewell. I promised to visit Daniel in Germany and quickly hobbled to the hostel. I was busting, and I only just made it into the toilet back at the hostel in time. Man, I found my bed and crashed. I was dead to the world until... Wilson! Wilson! It was the night manager. I had dropped my wallet in the bathroom, and he'd found it. Over the next few days, I toured the town. What an extraordinary city. I went to San Manes, the stadium for the local football team, Athletic Bilbao. I was blown away by the museum and the exhibition, the setup of the stadium, and finally learned the significance of the bust of Pichichi, the great player that sits at the side of the field on the halfway line. I did the bus tour that highlighted all the architectural features of Bilbao, the Ascuna de Zentropa, with its rooftop swimming pool that had a glass bottom, the impressive stained glass window inside the Estación de Abando, the La Ribera, uh, market, the Zibizuri Bridge, the iceberg-like structure of the Ministry of Health, the Torre Iberdrola, and even the glass canopies that rise out of the street pavement as the entrance to the Bilbao Metro that look like a giant worm-like 
creature has punctured the earth. I went back and toured inside the Guggenheim. I went outside the Guggenheim to, to gaze at the puppy, at, at Mama, the, the giant spider public artwork and walked the La Salva Bridge. Just extraordinary. I even caught the funicular to the top of Mount Artshanda, overlooking the city and saw the giant steel fingerprint public artwork commemorating the soldiers who defended the city against the fascists and a, an accompanying plaque honouring all the local and international brigades who fought in Bilbao during the Spanish Civil War. The war. I walked around town. Well, I limped through the streets and plazas, through the old and new areas of town. I ate pinchos and I wanted to have churros, but it was too early on my last day in town at this particular cafe where I stopped for churros. And I shared my dormitory at the hostel with two guys from Germany. Are you from Schaffenburg? Yeah, how did you know? I didn't. I just visited there once when I was last in Europe almost 30 years ago, and I thought I'd ask. And then there were five Italian guys in the dorm who were out for a big weekend in Bilbao. One of them was so drunk on the first night that he crashed into my bunk while trying to take off his pants and while I was asleep. His friends apologised in the morning, but I said, hey, it's okay. He was a happy drunk. They were laughing. I was laughing to myself and I went back to sleep. I kept walking around town, visiting different attractions, eating out. I was even stopped by a Spanish tourist asking me for directions. And slowly, my foot got better. It had been a great decision to stop, and it made me think about stopping more often in the future. But I needed to get back on track. So I bought a new, bigger pack cover from North Face, and some new shoes from Decathlon, and a new belt. And I decided to start walking again.